if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Acts. Were y'all guessing that? Good. Acts chapter 21, we'll be looking at verses 37 through 22, 29. In some ways, this will be part two even from last week as we continue in Paul being arrested in Jerusalem, having gone back there to give an offering, only to meet with some trouble there with the Jews. As you're turning, I want to remind you and just let me say as a personal invitation, if you're a guest with us, there's a lot of guests in the room today, and I know it might mean a few things for you, readjusting of your schedule, but we would love to have you join us with lunch with the staff. It is a packed house already, but we will make room for you as we gather together, we eat, and you get to hear about the mission and vision and meet our, our team, our ministry team here in the life of our church. It is immediately following our 11 o'clock service, so around 11.45 or so, which I'm just kidding. I was just going to make y'all think I get out earlier then. But, um, but no, it'll be immediately following that service. And if you have any questions or you'd like to speak to someone about it, you can step into our Welcome Center there, and they would love to greet with you and speak with you about it. And just let me remind you, if you're here today and you feel the need to, uh, at the end of the service to pray with someone or to speak with someone about a decision you need to make, our pastors will be in the back of the room during our, our hymn or our closing song of response. And so they would love to speak with you and pray. We used to call them counselors, but we don't want you to think you're getting counseling. We are just wanting to uh, have prayer time or speak with someone about what the Lord's doing in your life. We are in the middle of this section and run in Acts, middle of this narrative, as I said, of Paul here coming back to Jerusalem. And where we left off last week, Paul was confronted, some charges and were made to him by the Jews, especially the Jews that had come from Asia where he had been serving and working in his missionary journeys there. And they were making these charges against him. The crowd went into chaos. A mob arose. They started screaming. The Roman soldiers and the Roman council heard, the tribune heard what was going on, ran into the midst of the crowd, grabbed Paul up as they're preparing to beat him. They grabbed Paul up with the soldiers and were taking him to the barracks. They couldn't even understand what was going on because the crowd was large and they were screaming away with him, away with him, away with him. And that's where we left off there in the last week. And as I said, this will kind of be a part two. So I want to read and continue in this narrative here in verse 37 of Acts 21, verse 37, and we'll move through chapter 22, verse 29. Reading there with me, if you have your Bibles, you can read with me or it will be on the screen. Starting in verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, <clears throat> he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. 
And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers. I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by, of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him stay, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the testimony of the Apostle Paul. God, we pray today that all of us in this room would know and have a similar testimony that we have 
heard the call of Christ and we have followed him. That we are pursuing him with our life every day and that, God, we are ready to go wherever you would lead us or take us and stand for your truth in any and every place. God, help us today by your grace and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thomas Cramner was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, I know that means a lot to you. It's a small little town outside of Lexington, South Carolina. I'm just kidding. It's in England. He's the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he became Archbishop under Henry VIII. Now, we know maybe Henry VIII's escapades and why Henry VIII wanted to separate from the Catholic Church. And he did so and led England too, but it was Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cramner, that became the theologian behind the movement. While Henry had his reasons, and most of them were personal, Cramner was legitimately a theologian that believed in the Protestant Reformation. And so Cramner was leading the people out, and he was archbishop, the head of the church there, basically in England, leading them out under Henry, and then later under Henry's son, Edward. It was during Edward's reign that Canterbury really let this theology come out, and he wrote the Book of Common Prayer that, that led the way there in England, and he was doing all of this, leading them toward more gospel-based, God-centered theology, maybe. And so ultimately, Canterbury led that until Edward died suddenly, and Mary became queen. Now, in case you have not heard of Mary, she also goes by Bloody Mary. And she was not in any way in favor of the Protestant Reformation. In fact, she wanted to end it, and she wanted to end it in a bloody way. And under her reign, some 300 were martyred for their faith. Cramner was the key. He was the top one. If she could get him, not just to be martyred, but to get him to recant all of his positions, then maybe, just maybe, she could end this reformation, if you will, this, this movement toward Scripture alone as the primary for the church. And when she finally arrested Cramner, she put him in jail and in prison, and she made him watch the others get martyred. His friends, Latimer and Ridley, he had to watch them be martyred and burned at the stake. Finally, Cramner, having seen all of this, began to break. And he wrote five recantations. Really, Mary and her people wrote them for him. And they said, if you'll just sign these recantations and give up everything you believe, then, then, then we may can talk about your future, and then you may be relieved. And having seen all of these people die and be martyred for their beliefs, Cramner signed all five of them. He signed all five of them. But of course, that wasn't enough for Mary. She still wanted him dead. And even though he recanted, now she was going to have her crown jewel to demonstrate how useless and, and, and how weak this movement was toward the Protestants. And so she sent Cramner, even though he had recanted, to the fires. And there, as the people gathered round, Cramner, who had recanted, began to feel sorrow, of course, for that. He was upset, began to feel the weight of the fact that, that he gave up everything he believes. So how can he go into these fires with a clean conscience? And so Cramner stepped up to the fire. And as he did, he raised that right hand. 
what he called his unworthy hand. The hand that signed all of those recantations. And before he stepped into the fire, he put that unworthy hand in and watched it be consumed first. And in this one motion, all that Mary hoped to accomplish was reversed. Cramner stepping in and denying the very recantations and watching his hand burn first, then stepped into the fire and became a bulwark for the Protestant Reformation and, and affirmed it and became one who spurred it on rather than one who squashed it. Now, I, I look at that passage in, or that piece of church history and think, man, whenever my time is called upon to make a stand for Christ, I would love to think I'm ready to do it, right? And Cramner represents everything that, that we think about here. He's one who sees the pain of the martyrdom and others being killed because of their beliefs, and he recants, and yet, on the other side, he has a second chance, that opportunity to demonstrate that he does believe these things, and he wants to stand for truth, and he wants to stand for Christ. I would love to think that when my time comes to make that stand, I will do it too, just like Cramner did. Or just like Paul. And my purpose here is we see Paul who's doing the same thing. It's again time. And, and this time for Paul is different. Paul went to Jerusalem understanding and knowing the end was coming near. He went to Jerusalem saying, I may be arrested or I may die. Whatever it is, I'm in the Lord's hands. He thought this may be the end for sure. In fact, it looked a lot like before whenever Paul was leading the charge against Christians and he was standing there, even in his testimony, as Stephen is being stoned and the mob comes together and they, they put their fingers in their ears and they scream not to hear the testimony anymore. Paul was in that same moment, and Paul used that opportunity to not defend himself, but to proclaim Christ and the gospel. All of us would like to hope we would stay strong in that moment, right? Here, when we read this passage, as I said, it's kind of a continuation of last week. Last week, we saw that if we're going to to move forward, if we're going to make a stand for Christ, if we're going to share the gospel, we must be ready to go into hard places. Paul went into Jerusalem. If we're going to do that, we've got to be ready to have difficult conversations. Paul was ready for those hard conversations there with the Jews and speaking about theology and other things. And what I want us to see this morning is kind of a, a twofold thing real quick. I want us to, to learn three lessons here from this passage that kind of continue in that same theme that we see from Paul, that if we're going to make a stand for Christ, we've got to be ready for these things we got to be ready for these things. If we're going to establish the church, we have to be prepared to do these difficult things. And we see them in Paul, and then we'll close out by looking at his testimony briefly and seeing what that means for all of us. Three quick things I want us to note from this passage this morning. First, if we're going to keep making this stand for Christ, we must be ready to speak. We must be ready to speak. This readiness to speak is seen in Paul on several occasions. This one kind of astonishes me as well. I can't tell you that, that if the mob is around me, surrounding me, ready to beat me and, and, and kill me, and they have that much anger with it, and finally some Romans secure my, my safety and they pull me out, and it even says they're carrying him up to get through the crowd and they get to the barracks, 
I can probably tell you that I'm going to let them take me on inside and shut the door behind me, right? I'm probably going to let them move right on in and say, all right, I made it out of that mess, but not Paul. Paul gets to there, gets there to the top of the steps with the crowd behind him. And what does Paul say? He looks there to this, this uh, centurion, this tribune, and he says, can I speak to the people? Let me speak. Here, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Paul saw this not as an opportunity to dip out and not as the Lord just providing a way of escape. Paul saw this as a chance that I've got a crowd and I can proclaim the gospel to them. They've gathered in this space. Nothing matter to him that they've gathered for the purpose of putting him to death. They've gathered here. We've got an audience. Let's speak. Let me share. We must be bold. We must be bold in our willingness to speak. Paul clarified who he was there with those Roman centurions. He asked them or he speaks to them, uh, uh, may I say something to you as he speaks to the tribune. And the tribune hears him speaking in Greek. And the tribune's like, what's going on? The tribune was actually thinking that this was Paul. This was, Paul was actually an Egyptian who had stirred up a revolt. It speaks to the confusion and chaos of the moment. He doesn't even know who this is. And now Paul addresses him in Greek, which had been the learned language of the Roman Empire. And so here this, he addresses him in Greek and he speaks to him. He says, you're speaking Greek? I thought you were an Egyptian. No, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm Paul from Tarsus in Cilicia. I'm no obscure city. I'm a, I'm a citizen here. So can I speak to them? And he says, okay. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So he gives him permission to speak. And Paul, standing there, he begins to address the people, not in Greek, but in their dialect or language, their which could have been here, the either Hebrew or when it says Hebrew language, Hebrew dialect, could have been Aramaic as well. Paul begins to speak to the crowd in the language they would know. And so Paul knowing Greek, Paul knowing the Hebrew dialect, he addresses them in the language they would understand. And he speaks to them, of course, this is not the first time, but he speaks to them with pure confidence. Now, confidence leads to boldness. If we want to have more boldness in proclaiming the gospel, we must seek after more confidence in the one whom we proclaim. Confidence in the Lord will lead to more boldness there. And so let me just remind you of where Paul's confidence comes from. Paul's confidence arises not out of his ability to speak. Sure, he was probably a good and gifted talent, talented rhetorician. He, he had learned from Gamaliel. He had learned from others. Sure, he could, he could probably preach in a good way that would keep people's attention. But that was not what Paul was depending on. His confidence, as he would tell the Corinthians, is not found in any of those things at all. He says, I do not boast in that ability whatsoever. His confidence was not found in his ability to speak. His confidence was not found in his charisma that could win the crowd over. It was not found in any of those things. What got Paul to step up was that his confidence was based in a resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, whom he saw on the road to Damascus, whom he knew whom he understood was alive. And if Jesus is resurrected and alive, and if he did what he said he was going to do, then surely Paul's confidence is grounded in something, is grounded in something that that whole crowd cannot take away from him. 
Remember, on the way to Jerusalem, he wrote the book of Romans, and we saw just last week how Romans 8 speaks of the fact that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. Paul understood his confidence was in Christ. There's no condemnation for him. Nothing can separate him. No one can come against him. His confidence was found there, and that confidence led to a boldness to stand up and speak. We need to be reminded that our confidence is not in ourselves. And our abilities. In fact, I, I love, and I, I, I usually use this story as an illustration. One day I'll preach from it, from John chapter 9. The, the story of the blind man there, right? And, and he was blind, and, and Jesus saw him, and, and Jesus healed him. Remember, Jesus healed him. And, and he said to the blind man, you go and tell the, the people at the synagogue. You go and let them know what has happened. And so when he gets there, the blind man says, here I am. And they recognize him as the blind man. And this was the guy who's been at blind from birth by the gate. And they start pelting him with questions. And they start asking him over and over and over again all of these questions about, did he heal you on the Sabbath? What did he do? What did he say? Is this lawful? And the blind man keeps responding. The blind man who can now see. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about your laws. I don't know about your rules. I don't know about that. What I do know is I once was blind and now I see. His confidence was not in the knowledge he had to bear witness to Christ of the laws and all the theology and all the other things. His confidence was found in the fact that he once was blind and now he sees. And Jesus did that for him. And so Paul's confidence is found in the fact that he once was lost and dead in his sins and Christ Jesus made him alive and he is now alive forever in Christ. And he fears no man because of what he has in him. So his confidence is there. As Peter writes, apostle who felt this same confidence, he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here, Peter's saying, anytime, always be prepared to speak about the hope you have in Christ. Have the confidence in him that leads to boldness to be ready to share. If we are going to face these things, we must be ready to speak the testimony we have of Christ. That's why throughout Acts, the prayer is not for more confidence. The prayer is for more boldness. Their confidence was grounded in Christ. They keep praying for more boldness, more boldness based upon that confidence. We must be ready to speak and in speaking, we must be ready to give testimony of Jesus, not defending ourselves. We must be ready to give testimony of Jesus, not defending ourselves. Paul, when he gives his testimony, I find it interesting. They had charged him back in chapter 21. Here's the guy who brought Trophimus, the Ephesian Gentile, into the temple. And he hadn't done that, right? That was their charge as the crowd gathered around him. 
Or you see he's being misconstrued as an Egyptian who's come in to cause a riot and do some other things. That's not who he is either. So when Paul steps up, you would think that Paul's first instance would be to defend himself. Hey, look, crowd, you're angry at me. I haven't brought Trophimus in. I haven't brought a Gentile into the temple. I'm not the Egyptian. You've got it all wrong. You would think that would be his line of reasoning or argument. But that's not what he does. When he begins to speak, he simply starts his testimony of what Jesus has done in his life. Paul is not interested in defending himself. I find that fascinating. I want to be honest and transparent with you guys this morning. I got pulled over yesterday. I tell you, I didn't think I did anything wrong. And when I pulled what the guy, the guy, he's a nice guy. I like him. And he pulled me over because when I turned onto the road, my two tires went a little bit too far and crossed the white line. And he, then I straightened up just as easy as it could be. And he pulled behind me and pulled me over. I kid you not, he's, he's explaining to me what, I, what he's pulling me over for. And I'm like, do what? I mean, I do that 10 times a day. <laughs> just checking, just checking. See if you're drinking or anything. All right. Allison was with me. I stayed calm. But you want to know how bad I wanted to defend myself? Drinking? I hadn't drank anything since Final Four, 1994. And that was an accident. I wanted to defend what was going on, but I let it run its course, and by God's grace, he simply gave me a warning. Just the slightest charges against us are inclinations to defend. And what happens for us quite oftentimes is whenever, whenever the gospel or we are being attacked because of our stance on the gospel, our inclination is to defend ourselves. Paul's is not at all. Paul sees this as an opportunity not to defend himself. I didn't care what they think about him, whether he brings Trophimus in or whether he's this Egyptian. Paul knows none of that's true. His opportunity now is not to defend himself, but to give a word of faith in the gospel. And the context here, and he, he even uses this sense, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. He's not using defense in the same way we may understand it. For this comes in the context of Luke's gospel. Of course, Luke writing Luke's gospel, chapter, volume 1, Acts, volume 2. And as Luke's writing this, he tells about Jesus sending them out. And he says, Jesus says to his disciples when he sends them out, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Don't be worried about how you defend yourself or those things. And he says again in chapter 21 as he sends them out again. He says, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by my name's sake, but not a hair of your hair, hair will perish. By your endurance will you gain your lives. He says, you have done this for my name's sake. In other words, you're being brought for this case, not because of anything ultimately you have done, because the challenge here is not about flesh and blood. It's not about defending yourself. Jesus said you will be brought up and your defense is not about what 
presenting calls they place before you on why you were present. The real defense is why you believe what you believe. Why you stand where you stand. Why you hold to the truths you hold on to. That's your real defense. So don't worry about defending yourselves. This is an opportunity to bring glory to Christ Jesus. For gospel purposes. For gospel purposes. Another martyr in the Christian church. Talking about Thomas Cramner. Another martyr was Polycarp. Second century martyr. Had studied under the apostle John At the end of his life, Polycarp was brought into an arena by the Romans to be thrown to wild animals to be eaten because of his Christian stance. And as he was an old man, he's ready to go be martyred, being fed to hungry animals. And right before he's going in, here is Polycarp, 86 years old. And right before they throw him into the arena, they say to him, take this oath, an oath to the emperor. Take this oath. And I will release you. Revile your Christ. And right before Polycarp gets thrown in, he simply turns to them and says, For 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Polycarp offered no defense for himself. He just simply proclaimed his faithfulness to Christ. When the Lord calls on us to make a stand, it may not be in front of a mob ready to kill us. It may be at a dinner table with friends. It may be in the lunchroom with some people around us. It may be at the workplace that we have where others don't believe. It may be in those moments. And what we must do in those moments is not defend ourselves, but proclaim a gospel that has changed us and saved us. We must be ready to proclaim it. Third, we must be ready to suffer and at the same time use whatever legal means are at your disposal. We must be ready to suffer. We've seen that before. All of the hands of the mob were there and when you're at the hands of the mob, there's not much you can do about it. When the mob has come up, if if the Romans hadn't stepped in, Paul most likely would have died at that point. The mob is not listening to your pleas for the law or your pleas for order or justice. They're not listening to those things. And Paul knew he was in his hands. He had already said back in chapter 21 of of Acts, he had already said, whether I'm imprisoned or I die, whatever the Lord leads me, that's where I'm going. That's what I'll do. And so here when the Romans got him, Paul was not afraid at that point to make a claim. And we, we see it in the passage. He, he gets there, and man, this guy, it was actually, this centurion could have been put to death for flogging a Roman citizen without going through the justice system. And so here is Paul stretched out, the centurion's getting the whip ready and ready to roll over here, going to flog this one who he thinks is just a Jew and a citizen there, a Jewish citizen and has no part. And Paul says, hey, you going to beat a Roman citizen? And that changes everything. Paul, at this point, uses that option, uses that legal rule here to say, I'm not looking to get flogged. Paul never runs from persecution. He never runs from the flog. We see that he's willing to do whatever it takes and go wherever, whatever may cost, he's going to proclaim Christ. He never runs for it. But in this case, he's not some masochist in any way that he's just looking for pain. He looks to him and says, hey, you going to flog a Roman citizen? 
The centurion gets mad to the tribune. Hey, what you about to make me do, man? I'm about to flog this guy, and he's a Roman citizen. We haven't even gone through the trial and gone through these things. And then the tribune's all caught off guard. The tribune comes up to him and says, hey, man, I paid a lot of money to be a citizen, and you don't look rich. How are you a citizen? I bought mine. Paul says, I'm one from birth, which makes him even step back even more. They stop the flogging. They stop it all because they realized Paul was a Roman citizen. They bound him and threw him in the barracks. Paul had just wrote the book of Romans where he says to them in 13, chapter 13, verse 1, be subject to the governing authorities. And like Paul at this time, we too have rights and we're free to exercise those rights. In our own country, we are free to exercise the rights that have been given to us to speak first with free speech and to not be coerced into believing anything that we should not believe or in any way, no state religion, no coercion from that. We have these rights and we have these freedoms and we're free to exercise our belief system within those rights and freedoms. And Paul was willing to die for the gospel, but he was not looking for it. He uses this opportunity to use that that law that was in place to protect him. For Paul, he sees it as a chance to, to keep moving forward. And you'll see how it works. He's going to appeal all the way up and go through the judicial process that was given to a Roman citizen. Why? Because at each point, Paul's going to proclaim the gospel. And he's going to tell those governing authorities of who he is and give a defense for why he stands where he stands. Paul is going to use this for us. For us in our own country, we need to recognize that we have a freedom to proclaim the truth of Christ Jesus and to exercise our beliefs within the law of our government. And that, my friends, is a blessing. In my estimation, in our own government, though many have tried, we have not to this date lost any judicial ruling where religious liberty was at hand. Our religious liberties have been kept up over and over and over again. And so we exercise our rights with respect for the laws and with an aim to view and honor Christ and to share his gospel freely. Paul is ready to die, but he's also willing to use whatever he can to continue to share his faith. Which brings us to his testimony. Which brings us to his testimony. Here in chapter 22, Paul gives us his testimony for the first time in his words. Chapter 9 were Luke's words narrated for us. Chapter 22, Paul gives it, in his, gives it in his words. Basically, five little stages here. He speaks of his conservative Jewish upbringing relating to the hearers that were present. They're conservative Jews, and that's part of the problem. And then adding to that, he speaks to how, yes, I used to be just like you, basically. I had zeal for the law, which gets to the relevance of his testimony itself. He has zeal for the law. And then he speaks of his conversion to faith in Jesus and how Jesus saved him on the road to Damascus and how then he leads him to Ananias, a highly respected Jew. He's discipled there at first by Ananias, one who respects and is respected and then finally he tells him of his calling in the temple from the authority of god to go to the gentiles now when he gives this testimony we see the classic testimony 
way in some sense. We, we get the idea of who he was before and how he was converted. And now what is he doing? We see that he was zealous for the law and he was bound up in that. He was trusting in those things for his salvation. And Jesus met him because his zealousness for the law had led him to murder, had led him to destroy, had led him to hurt others in this way. So Paul recognizes his calling there by Christ to come and follow him. And so he speaks of his conversion. And now he tells them, of, here's what I'm doing now. I've been called to go to the Gentiles. And in this, we can see these three callings, if you will, for Paul. First, he's called out of his sin. He's called out of his sin. Paul recognizes that he once was lost, but now he's been found. In fact, he writes to the Ephesians that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. We were once pursuing after our own lusts, pursuing after our own desires, but God has saved us and redeemed us. He tells to the, he writes this to the Corinthians. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 11, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. A call to follow Jesus is a call to leave our sin behind. Repentance is the word we use for this. We turn away from our sin and leave it. A call to follow Jesus that Paul meets on the road is to leave his zealousness for the things that cannot save him. To leave those things that had led him to be a murderer, blind and lost in his sin. Leave those things behind and then he's called to follow Christ. You see, the call out of our sin to leave our sin behind and the call to follow Christ go hand in hand. They do not operate in opposition to each other or even at different times. They go together throughout the scriptures. But it's important that we say them both. Because some people may get the assumption that you can follow Christ and still enjoy and stay in your sin. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, not only did I hear Christ call me, but I left those things I used to do. I used to be like that, but now I'm different. I was taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light. I'm changed now because of what Christ has done. He calls me out of my sin and calls me to follow him. Notice what he says in chapter 22, verses 14 and 15. Ananias says, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Not only in salvation do we leave our sin, but we know the Father's will, we know Christ Jesus, and we hear his voice. And just as Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me, so it is. What it means to be a believer, it means to leave our sin and to follow Christ Jesus. In Paul's testimony, we see both of those callings to leave and to follow. And then we see the third calling, called out for ministry. Here he's in the temple. And as he's in the temple, he has this moment where the Lord comes to him again and says, make haste, get out of Jerusalem because they will not accept your testimony. 
And Paul says, what am I supposed to do? If I'm leaving Jerusalem, where am I supposed to go? If I stay here, surely they're not going to hear my testimony because they're already upset at me. They're already, I, I used to be this. They're scared of me in some sense. So where am I supposed to go? And there he receives a, uh, he receives a clear calling from the Lord. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul not only was called out of his sin and called to follow Jesus, he was given a clear ministry call. Clear call to ministry. What stabilized or gave Paul the confidence he needed was the recognition that Jesus called him out. You see, when Paul is staring at a crowd that's ready to kill him, his confidence is not just in the resurrected Savior, but it's in the resurrected Savior who called him. Who called him. He didn't, he didn't just think of this as, as secondary or, or some other outside. He called Paul. And Paul has a confidence because he knows Jesus has called me to this. I want to be clear and honest with you guys. In ministry, in ministry that we pursue and we go after, the thing that keeps you in ministry is not the money. It is not the friendships, and it's not people coming up to you saying, hey, I got a problem, Pastor. That's not what keeps you in it. What keeps you in it in the very difficult things and in the good things is the clear fact that the Lord has called me to it. And the Lord has called you. If you're a child of God today, he's called you. You have heard his voice. If you trust in Jesus today, it may not be as dramatic as what happened to Paul, but it's as clear as what happened to him for you. You heard Jesus. You heard his plea. You heard his cry. And you left your sin and you are following after him. You're pursuing him. So why is it that we would trust him with our life, but not trust him in those moments where it gets difficult to share his name? He says, not only am I going to save you and redeem you and take you home, I'm going to give you the very words you need to say in those moments. That calling that God has given to us is where we find our confidence. And maybe today, surely today, the Lord is calling you. If he's not called you out of your sin, may you hear that voice today. He's pleading with you even to leave your sin and to follow after him. And maybe you're learning, you're, you're wanting to know what your next step is in life. And maybe it's that voice of the Lord who through his scripture is telling you, follow me. You're not trusting me with all that you have in that way, in that way. You surely do not have the joy that I long for you. But maybe just like Paul, the Lord is calling you specifically today. Just as he called me in 1994. Josh, you are to preach my word. Maybe he's calling you specifically today to preach his word, to work with him in ministry, to be a witness for him with your life every day, everywhere to go to the deepest, darkest places of this world, maybe he's calling you today to those things. Just as he called Paul. If we want truly to be a witness for Christ in the most difficult of places, we must be ready. And the only way we will ever be ready is when we have heard his call and we have followed him. May that be true of all of us today.
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is good. We thank you for Christ who has done everything for us. There's nothing left for us to do but follow him, Father. And so may that be true of all of us. Jesus, our Lord, is enough. May we be faithful to follow. Some of us need to leave our sin behind, God. We keep getting entangled in those things. And may, may that be the case today. May we hear the call to leave our sin, just as Paul heard it. And in leaving it, may, may we know, Father, that the only way we can truly leave is to follow after Christ, to hear his voice, and to do his will. So God, give us a heart for that. Help us to hear that call today. God, some, I believe you are calling out to ministry, specifically calling them to ministry. God, may that be, may that be true. Raise up amongst us men and women who will give their lives to follow after you in ministry, just as Paul did. Whatever the case, God, may everyone in this room hear your call now and be faithful to follow. Even as we stand together, let's sing.